Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Finally putting a face to multiple names. Excuse me, Mr. Bloom, Emily Arnold from Seven News. Am I able to ask you a couple of questions about how you're feeling ahead of the inquest today? Rick Bloom, Frederick de Hardavere, Rick West, Fernand Remekel. The 83-year-old serial swindler was Marion Barter's secret lover. The Gold Coast mother of two embarked on a trip to Europe in 1997 and was never seen again by friends or family. Today, Bloom's wife of almost 46 years, Diane de Hardavere, took the stand. Mrs de Hardavere, what has your husband told you about his relationship with Marion Barter? She told the court she hadn't heard about Marion until police came knocking last year. She asked her husband. He said he caught up with her once or twice, that was all. She, I think, put out a message or something to someone in the paper. Mrs Dehardvere was pressed on why she didn't probe more deeply on her husband's relationship with Marion. Did you not want to understand more fully why it was police were contacting him concerning a missing person known as Marion Barter? I had never heard of her before, so I was surprised at the whole thing anyway. He had no idea that she was a missing person. New details emerging after 25 years, thanks largely to the hit podcast The Lady Vanishes, including yet another name, Rick Bloom's wife revealing he went by Willie Wooters before changing it to Frederick de Hardavere just before they were married in 1976. Diane de Hardavere's evidence will continue here at the Ballina Courthouse tomorrow morning. We will then hear from Rick Bloom. It's hoped he will provide key information about what happened to Marion to help solve this 25-year-old mystery. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I'm not finished yet with this incredibly interesting and fascinating conversation with my very special guest who's been helping me piece together and make sense of this very complex case. And I'm so happy, Joni, that you are giving of your time to me and sharing your knowledge with my listeners. So please introduce yourself again. Hello, it's Joni again, just coming to you from Australia. Let's talk Mr. Rick Bloom. Yes, I mean, it's a huge subject in and of itself. And we've wanted to, I mean, in between all the episodes, we have talked a little bit, but we want to sort of tie it all together now. Of We've mentioned that there were many aliases. We've talked about the fact that as a person in a family business selling furniture, you don't need all these aliases to do that type of work. 
and a criminal history that's extensive. And it started in Europe. And you've done such a brilliant job, Janie, of tying pieces together and and things that I didn't know about when I first talked about Mr. Rick Bloom. I was just talking about what I saw in terms of his interactions with women. And I knew that he was somebody who's done this many times before. But let's go back in time and start with, first of all, his criminal history, because you had a document that you shared with me, which was from the International Criminal Police Organization that's 10 pages long, which documents a very extensive history of offending behavior. And and just to caveat it with, whatever someone's convicted for is normally just tip of the iceberg. It's what they've been found doing and convicted for. It's not necessarily everything that they're doing. But let's start off with that document, Joni. This document came from, I applied to the National Archives of Australia for Mr. Rick Bloom's um, citizenship file. And luckily, um, this document was found within the three volumes of that citizenship file, which in Australia is actually public knowledge. So you can go and view those, you apply. But yeah, so obviously this record was part of that, which was most interesting to read. (laughs) Yes, it's fascinating to read. And it's also fascinating that you mentioned that it's within the citizenship documents. Now, I've moved to America and it took a lot to go through all of the checks and all the interviews to live and work here. Australia was even more stringent because I did look at moving to Australia at a certain time in my life. And when I was looking, it was very rigorous and very stringent in terms of immigration. So I just found it fascinating, first off, that he has all this history of offending behaviour elsewhere, but yet he still managed to get citizenship in Australia. And I know that's a big cause of contention, but it just shows that he duped and manipulated the system. Yes, well, he actually arrived using his brother's identity. So he didn't even actually arrive the second time when he did apply for citizenship underneath his own identity. He utilised his brother's and he does state that he did that in court. He admits to that in court. So he actually currently retains the same driver's licence as what he got back in 1974, which was underneath his brother's name to this day. There is a very, very long history there and the fact that he came in using an incorrect identity, an identity that was not his, then applied for a name change, got married and here we are now. It very much is a very contentious issue and it's one that I've actually written to our immigration minister here in Australia about detailing everything because that file says it all. You cannot say that that didn't happen. It's all there. It shows the file movements. It shows who looked at what. There's signatures everywhere. It's crystal clear exactly what has occurred in this case in relation to his citizenship. Absolutely. And when when you're talking about his brother, you're talking about his now dead brother. And his brother died some time ago, unexpectedly, didn't he, Freddie? And what I see in the wake of Mr. Rick Bloom is people either die suddenly and unexpectedly, like his brother Freddie, who was in his 40s and apparently was relatively fit. And then he just dropped dead, having been driving a car and dropped dead on on the ground. But his mother had also died recently, as had his um, stepfather, Andre Wouters. So that seemed to be, that seems to be very odd to me. And then he takes his brother's identity. 
That's right. And I guess winding back just at 12 months prior, also his wife's parents both passed away as well. Suddenly and unexpectedly? Uh, one, yes. And it's always looking, for me, looking in the rearview mirrors. It is important to look backwards, you know, and his wife, are you talking about Diane, who he who he married yes. and very quickly applied for his citizenship, didn't he? Within, I think it was within a few weeks that he applied. It was almost immediate. That's right. Oh, because his father was dying in Belgium at that time, apparently. So he needed to get a hurry on. And so therefore, the application went all the way down to Canberra as a bit of a special consideration. And then he didn't leave for three months. And the fact is, his father died in the 1940s. And his stepfather's is still alive in the 80s. So I'm not sure who the father was that he had to get to Belgium to see before he died. So again, very much rushed, do things quick so that, you know, potentially I think that's possibly one of his strategies, do things fast, take people unawares, you know, get people a bit off kilter, do things in a special way. Yeah, and create a crisis that this is immediate, has to happen, an accelerated timeline, just as what I've talked about with Marion. That's right. So that's consistent with him, isn't it? Very, yep. And then within this document, I mean, it's 10 pages long, but what you effectively see is his criminal convictions from 1976 onwards, but it's a real range of offending from traffic offences to false documents, frauds, I mean, multiple frauds and false impersonations, so taking people's identities, attempted frauds, checks without cover, forgery, possession of hash. It's a repetition on a theme, isn't it? And being found guilty of these things, he's convicted and sentenced at times in terms of a financial fine that he has to pay, but he has served prison time too. Do you want to say more about that? Yes. So in the early 70s, so in 1971, he actually went to prison for some of these offences coming out in 1974. So it was quite a significant period of time for the types of offending that he had done. Um, and just to mention too that this all started back in the mid-1960s, so things didn't really come to bear on him until he returned from Australia after em emigrating here with his then wife, Ilona Kinzel. So things did actually catch up with him when he moved back to Lille to live with Ilona Kinzel after he had left Diane de Hedeveri, or at that time Diane Walker, on the cruise ship when he met her coming out to Australia. So, yeah, so he, he went into jail for three years at that stage. We're unsure what actually happened to him in 1977 because 1978, because there's a whole lot of charges there that relate to post-1974, obviously, um, and it's still undetermined whether Rick Bloom actually was incarcerated for the offences in you know, post-1974, that's still very much unknown and unclarified. That's interesting because there was some, some information from a cousin who said that his behaviour and the fact that he was in prison was really shameful and embarrassing to his family who were quite well-to-do and put together, that this was outside their code of, of principles and ethics and 
you know, they really felt that he brought shame to them. And it was in the newspapers as well, apparently. Yes, yes. We've seen those um, those articles in the Belgium newspapers. So they're available online. Um, we've located them. So it was advertised. It was in the papers about exactly what did occur. And even prior to this happening too, so we've found offences as a teenager where he's done stuff like stripping copper wires and copper piping from buildings, breaking into schools and, and taking things from the school with a gang of other, other boys, so much so that one time he actually got shot at by police in an attempt to stop him from escaping from that situation. Yeah, and, th- and those things were reported in the paper at the time, the local newspaper. So that's like in the 1950s. Yeah, so in the 1950s, he was actually getting into trouble as a teen with a couple of other boys and they were doing things like stripping piping from buildings and breaking into schools and taking supplies and things like that. And it's interesting that a neighbour within the Gold Coast has actually said, allegedly, whether this is true or not, I do not know, that he actually did do that in the Gold Coast as well. And she offered, she often wondered why he would be going around the streets taking things from building sites and storing them in his garage at Miami in the Gold Coast. But again, that's just a neighbour's report and there's no evidence to back that up. But it does corroborate what else is said about him and getting into trouble from a young age. But then... In 1959, he becomes a military police officer. And I think that's very interesting that he was troubled and troublesome. And then he joins the very people who are trying to bring law and order. You know, it's the po- I call, call it when I was at New Scotland Yard, poacher turned gamekeeper. You know, and they like that power and control, but also the knowledge it affords of joining the police. And I really don't think we should forget that. Yes, he was in the mounted brigade, but what that provides in terms of knowledge and information and understanding criminal behaviour and how to fly under the radar, you learn another level of knowledge and tradecraft. And that can be used as a force for good, but also for nefarious doings too. Yes, he was also a security guard for a period of time too and he has put this in his own evidence on the stand that he worked as a security detail, security guard um, at a large department store. Yeah, so again, he has knowledge of, of things, how to do things, how to get things done. Yeah, and it also gives you that power that you are an authority figure, even with security guards. A lot of security guards are wannabe cops right? And it gives them that edge of authority, as well as surveillance training and all all these other skill sets as well. But I I think that's a very important component, actually, in his ability to hop from country to country, go in and out of countries via different routes, the aliases. You know, all of this is about his tradecraft and and flying under the radar, um, even in terms of the amounts of money. When you look at the prolific nature of offending and multiple frauds on multiple days or in quick succession, they're all numbers like 200,000 francs or 130,000 or 105,000. They're a number 
that don't really ring too many alarm bells, but when they're added up together, it's a significant amount. And especially considering the use of that border too, Laura. So we're talking Belgium and then dipping down into France, then going back up to Belgium, going to the top corner of Belgium and then back down to the southern part near Luxembourg. So actually looking at a map of where those offences occurred, he was quite prolific over sometimes he'd have stints where he'd be two or three days and he'd be travelling very vast distances between offences. So, again, high energy, frenetic, going from one place to the next quickly, jumping over borders, driving offences. And pretty thrilling stuff, probably, from his perspective, you know, evading and finding all these different ways to do the things that, that he was doing. And, and again, just reiterate what we know of is really just tip of the iceberg in terms of his convictions. If he's that prolific, there'd be much more that perhaps you know about now, Joni, seeing as you've put together this extensive timeline, but he was very busy, wasn't he? Well, according to a man, Mr. Reed, who was Ilona Kinzel's ex-husband, he said that he has got newspaper articles too, which was a bit of a car um, business where he would get a hire car in Switzerland with a gang of men and he would, they go over the border, they go into Italy like a luxury car, they'd number plate it and then they'd sell it and then they'd flee back over the border and divide the profits. So as to whether that is true, that was in the 1970s too. As to whether that's true, I don't know because I haven't seen the newspaper article myself or any evidence of it. But considering that that was Switzerland and Italy, that may not have been reflected in the Belgian criminal record. So again, borders, high value items, working with others. He did say on the stand that he had someone to to do all all of the identity documents for him. So he even said that on the stand. So there was a bit of leakage there around he did work with others in the 70s. And it has been sort of thought by some that perhaps he did, it was always about power and control, but perhaps he did change his his MO or his approach over the years, depending on, you know, looking for the gaps and then filling the gaps. But certainly within that criminal record, I just find it interesting that there is a few there that raise my eyes. So one of them in particular being Christiane Dijon, So that occurred on the 18th of October, 1976. So she made a complaint and so her complaint was that she had given him items which had been given to him on condition that they be returned or employed for a specific purpose. So to me, that's interesting that it's a woman, he's been given things and then they haven't been given back to her. So it's quite similar to some of the more current women's complaints about taking things and not giving them back. Absolutely. And I think that that's foreshadowing. It is the pattern. And and I have no doubt he was doing lots of different things and with other people who were helping with various components. But he was the person who had probably the overall understanding of it, but using other people for, for different parts. And yes, high value goods from 
books to figurines to stamp collections, even bicycles. I mean, there's lots of different items. So when you were talking about the chess, for example, you know, all these different random items that he then tries to sell on. Well, he has a history of doing this and it goes way back when, right? But also number plating a car so that you have the car, you have looking at rental for properties in the name of Bernard Dupont. So there are quite a few, there are quite a few um, different aspects to his offending, his proven offending, where he was just taking advantage. And don't forget, like in the middle of this, he married in 1976. His wife was around in this time too. So he was a newly married man, having just married his fourth wife. She was around in those 76, 77 Days. I mean, what what was she thinking? Where was she? What was her her thought on all of this? Yes, well, Diane. I mean, she was nineteen at the time, and I would imagine she was quite impressed by this older man who was oh. what thirty one years old, and that that's quite an age gap between the two. But that's a pattern that's been repeated. I mean, four wives. And he seems to target Mm. women who are younger. 19, you're still a baby. I mean, you're still young at that age. Yes. Oh, very much so. Like seeing the image of her that Mr Bloom handed over to the court of his business in Luxembourg. To me, she just looks so young in that image. She looks 19. Yes, and just seeing her, I mean, that's the reality that she was young and he was an older guy. And so you have a power imbalance right from the start. So the question of, well, what did she know? Probably at that stage, very little. She probably just thought he was, well, she thought he was a photographer. They met on a boat, didn't they? And she was with her parents and perhaps he wooed them all. It sounds to me like that he had that ability even back then. But his aliases we've mentioned, and some of those aliases we see within the documents, don't we? Like Bernard Dupont, we see names that that he's then later taken. And I, I think it's also worth just mentioning that in the document about his criminal history and his convictions, it's also noted that he is of no known residence in Belgium or abroad. That intrigued me. That's right, because he had Australian citizenship at that stage. So therefore, in Belgium, because we actually looked into this, that would make him of no known residence because, I mean, at that time he was flitting around, even in Australia, from various different addresses, always out near the ocean on points, so literally surrounded by ocean, ocean views, tiny little communities The one in Redland Bay was like on a side road, but, you know, within metres of like a swampy water, literally in the middle of nowhere is where he was staying over this time. And it's also to be noted too that in 1977, his family actually set up the business, the family business that he talks about a lot in court. Then there was a meeting in a hospital setting where he resigned and his wife actually became the person in charge of that business, Diane de Hedeveri. So again, putting females forward, Diane said on the stand she had no idea that she was part of that business in any way. She was a married woman and then she was a mother of a very young child. But the fact that she has been put forward as the director of that business 
is very interesting to me too. A bit like getting the women to go in and sell the coins or sell the stamps or collect catalogues. It's the same kind of role, playing that legitimate role because he knew that he he was not legitimate in that case. He put an incorrect birth date down on those documents. He also said that he was born in Sydney, Australia. So he completely distanced himself from his actual heritage of being born in Belgium. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between, like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free, made with clean, skin loving ingredients, high performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 20% off your first order. 
all of that, I mean, again, just tells me that he will put women up when it suits him to create a very different shop window and to distract, but also to have on official documents no residents outside of Australia. I just think it's very intriguing, particularly when you hear Diane talk about them going back to Belgium and various parts of Europe to stay with family. And yet within the official documents, he's of no residents, not domiciled anywhere. And that is the crux of the problem with the likes of Mr. Rick Bloom and other men like him, uh, like Tinder Swindler and so on, that they're not domiciled anywhere. Therefore, no one takes responsibility for their behaviour. And it just gets written up as, you know, minor offences that actually no big deal when Europol and other agencies like the FBI should be targeting these individuals, but they are flying under the radar and they know how to. This tells me Mr. Ripplem knows exactly how to fly under the radar. And it, it makes me angry. That's why I'm talking so quickly, because it just really, you know, makes me so angry that women can be exploited like this and men, and yet no one's really paying attention to it. No. Well, certainly within the citizenship documents, there's a letter there that said no further follow-up required because as far as we're aware, he's currently residing in Belgium. So therefore, it's not the, it's not Australia's problem anymore, basically. And then the file gets archived, gets put into archive in a different state. Therefore, is it our problem? Is it their problem? Whose problem is it? It's no one's problem. Because as long as he's somewhere else, it really is no one's problem. And that's exactly what he banks on every time. And it's worked for him. It's worked well for him. And even when people say, oh, well, he's 83, he's 84, he's an old man. All these things, there should be accountability at every stage. And that's what investigators, I believe, have to get far better at understanding the world is a very small place. I mean, when he was doing this, the world was much bigger, wasn't it? You know, in the sense that going from country to country and there wasn't social media and actually the world felt much bigger and he exploited that. But now with the advent of social media and travel and so on, the world is a much smaller place. But, Joni, I have to say that I don't believe law enforcement has caught up with that. I don't feel that in every sphere, like you would treat an organised criminal, which is, for me, what he is, that this is a top-tier type of offender and he should be on a top 100 list nationally and internationally. You know, and that's where we need to get far better of seeing male violence and abuse of women as a priority and not just putting it down to, well, he's a con man, he's a scammer. Oh, well, no one really got hurt. Because then when they escalate their behaviour, no one's paying attention. And then what someone would say is, well, he didn't do it before, so what are the chances of him doing it now? I.e. once they've escalated, but you only know what you know. And that's why you've asked some very fascinating and, and perceptive questions about his behaviour and timelining him. And there's so much more to it, isn't there? We're literally just scratching the surface right now of his behaviour and what was going on in his life. Yes, yes, I agree with everything that you've said, yes. So what more would you add from the, the document that details his criminal history of convictions of what's known about? I would add that... Just the sheer number and volume of 
things that he was actually caught for over this time, yes, at that time he was a young man. So he was, what was he, in his 30s, in his 40s. Yes, over time things do slow down a little bit. But certainly going into the 90s and the early 2000s, to me, looking at it, the sheer energy of this person, the ability to do crimes on the same day in totally different areas of a country says to me, why would that not have continued? You almost have to disprove that didn't continue, that frenetic sort of nature. When I think of him saying, oh, well, if I had a certain someone to speak to, I'd just go down to the local phone box and you give them the number of the phone box in Ballina. Or he would go down to the local transit centre, Traveller's Aid, and he would get, like, they would actually take a message for, for back, it was designed for backpackers and travellers. You know, he said, I think Marion phoned me at the transit centre. So he's actually utilising phone numbers outside of his own home. And he he actually had he was on a Centrelink pension. So he had 24 hours a day, seven days a week to do this stuff. So he's had a whole lifetime of time and hours, an active, intelligent mind to do this. I think it remains to be seen when he actually did slow down, if that's what he was like in his 30s and in his 40s. Yes, I think that's a very good and important point, actually, about time, that he's not doing anything constructive. His energy is all going into this tradecraft of exploiting people and, and taking whatever he wanted with no regard for them. And the fact that he was on a pension, well, that pension wasn't enough for him to be travelling all over the world. That's another very interesting point of how did he get this money to live this sort of lifestyle of travelling all over the world as if he's a very successful businessman because it's not through his pension that he's living, is it? And that's why the following the money is really important. Investigators do that. Yes, yes. I mean, he still currently has, although he has distanced himself from this entity, but it was raised in court, the entity of Renov Pubs in Belgium. I located that a few years ago now and I actually kept track of all of the name changes on that business, and they would change. So when he had a name change, that entity would change the name as well. So when he changed his name to Rick Blum in Australia, suddenly this entity ran off pubs. The director would suddenly become Frederick David de Hedeveri, Rick Bloom. Will he, so it's following him, but he categorically denies in court that he had anything to do with that business, even though it was set in the apartment that he was living in at the time when he emigrated to Australia. Again, that business is still open and we've been urging authorities to go overseas and actually look, follow the money trail because Marion's money, 80,000 Australian dollars went somewhere. So where did it actually go? And are the records still available? Look further overseas. And that's why Sally and I are going overseas in order to seek out the information that, that is needed to be sought out. Fingers crossed we can. Excellent. I mean, the, the financial tracking is following the money is the thing that's going to catch him because ultimately the forensic accounting, the money never lies. 
Yes, you can be savvy about moving things around. And yes, he clearly was on the forefront. He had time on his hands, but he's also created something that's quite elaborate. It's very hard to stay on top of all the lies as well. You know, the police were up to like 50 aliases with him, but there's a lot of derivatives mm -hmm. that he used. And the police are used to doing it with organised criminals, you know, taking down big criminals. Mm -hmm. I just wish they would apply the same tactics to men like Mr. Rick Bloom. And it, it's actually very oh. simple when you timeline thoroughly and when you follow the money and when you know that you're dealing with someone who's very manipulative and thinks on their feet. And an example of that yes. is... He was spoken to on June the 8th by New South Wales Police about Marion Barter and he denied any knowledge of her. But he did admit to placing the ad in Le Courier Australium. Now, he denied knowledge of her, but on June the 9th, he makes a new statement saying that he did know her, but he didn't know she was missing. Now, that's uh -huh. really interesting. That's to say that you... You did know her, but you didn't know she was missing. And to say that his Queensland driving licence, the F Remical one, that that was him too, well, that implicates him a third time with that name regarding Marion. Now, when he's asked about it at the coronial inquest, he, he had this whole thing, didn't he, about that it wasn't a romantic relationship, it was a sexual relationship, and, and that did come mm. out. So the timeline, that's very important. But mm. he was asked why he didn't volunteer this to New South Wales Police. And he basically said they never asked him about mm. it. They never asked him about uh -huh. it, and he failed to disclose that. And he basically said that he had no idea of the importance of it. It was just, you know... Talking, what can I say? Even that shows that he can think on his feet. He thinks he's covering bases, but he's not. He's not covering a base. The fact that Marion went missing, very important, and him saying that she, he just didn't know her at that stage, and I don't believe it was to do with his wife Diane finding out because of things that he says later on. And the things that he says later on, things like... He was asked in February 2022 if he had a personal knowledge of Marion wanting to start a new life. And he said no, that he didn't have knowledge of that. But when he's later questioned in June 2023 at the inquest, when it reconvenes, he tells the coroner that he believed Marion was alive and that she oh. had told him she wanted, and I'm quoting him, she wanted to separate from her family. She didn't want anything to do with any member of her family, he said. But that's not what he said in 2021. And it's not what he said in 2022. No. But it's what he said clearly from listening to The Lady Vanishes. That's the only way he would have knowledge of that or reading newspaper articles. And if he's read newspaper articles, he's researching Marion. For what reason? If he listened to The Lady Vanishes, it's he's researching. For what reason? He's altering his statements that tells us he's deceptive again, but these are very significant things. Rick Bloom changes his statement and his story, and I want you to hear it for yourself. This is from The Lady Vanishes, again voiced by actors. You understand, I take it, having read the brief of evidence, that this is an inquest into the disappearance of Marion Barter. And do you understand you are a witness in this inquest? Because I saw... You have accepted, have you not? that you had a sexual relationship with Marion Barter in the 1990s and a previous sexual encounter with her in the 1960s in Switzerland. That's right. 
Mr Blum, Marion Barter's family, is present in court today. Are you aware, from reading the brief, that there is some evidence that suggests that in mid-October 1997, Marion Barter was located safe and well? Police told me that when she came back, she stayed in a motel in Brisbane for a week. Well, you can take it from me, please, that there is some evidence contained within the material provided to you that in mid-October 1997 that Marion Barter was located in Australia, safe and well, and was starting a new life and did not want her whereabouts known. Do you know anything about Marion Barter wanting to start a new life and her whereabouts not to be disclosed? I read somewhere that the police in Queensland said that she went into a cult society. I'm asking you, yourself, whether you have any personal knowledge about Marion wanting to start a new life and not having her whereabouts known. No, honestly, no. So that's what he said when he was asked at the coroner's inquest in 2022. Did you catch that he volunteered that he had read somewhere that the police in Queensland thought that Marion had gone into cult society? It's really interesting to me that he volunteers this, and I believe the purpose is to create distance between him and Marion and also send people off in another direction. However, when pressed by counsel, he said he in fact knew nothing about Marion starting a new life. Well, now you're going to hear what Rick Bloom said when he was recalled to be questioned once more at the coroner's inquest in 2023 when he appeared again with his wheelie walker with Hero written on it. Take a listen to this. At the conclusion of my examination of you yesterday, I asked you this question, Mr Blum. Would you like to say anything further in relation to the disappearance of Marion Barter? And you answered, no. What could I say? I then asked you, you don't know what became of Marion Barter? And you answered, I myself believe that she's still alive. That's what I believe, but I don't know anything about what she did, or whereabouts, or nothing at all. Then her honour asked you, Mr Blum, why do you believe Marion is still alive? To which you answered, because she... I can't tell you exactly when, but... And in a conversation before she went to England, she said that she wants to separate from her family. She didn't want anything to do with any member of her family. She was a bit of a strange person. To which her honour then asked you... Can I ask you, where were you when she said that to you? You answered, when she said that to me, it was in her place. Her Honour then asked you, in her house? You responded, yeah. And then her Honour asked you, whereabouts was that? To which you then respond, in Queensland. I can't remember the name of the suburb, but she said that she's had enough of her family. Do you remember giving that evidence yesterday, Mr Blum? Mr Bloom does remember giving that evidence. So, Adam Castleton probes further. Can I ask you, are you able to give more detail about which visit you had with Marion in 1997 when she said those matters to you? Was it the first occasion you met with her in Southport, the second occasion there in Southport, or the third occasion that you met with her? I can't remember. And are you sure that she said those words to you in Queensland? Or could it have been to you here in New South Wales? No, no. No, it was... It was... It was in Queensland. And how did that conversation come about, Mr Blum? It was a general... General... General discussion, but... I can't remember. You can't give any more context as to how it was she came to say those matters about abandoning her family. No, 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 no. 
Would you agree with me, throughout the course of your evidence in this inquest, you have rarely descended into that level of detail in relation to your interaction with Marion Barter? What do you want me to say? Well, do you agree or disagree with what I've just suggested to you, Mr. Blum? I just said, uh, remember that particular thing that she said, but that was all. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't particularly, particularly interested in anything of that kind. So, I, I, I found, I can't remember. She made that, that point that I thought was probably a bit, a bit strange. Mr. Bloom denies suggestions that the new evidence he has suddenly remembered about a conversation with Marion Barter is a lie. He becomes befuddled and again stutters and stumbles repeatedly when Mr. Cassidon asks him whether he realises how important this information is. I can understand that. But I can't, I can't, uh, I can't, I don't, so many years ago, I don't remember. I have to ask why you did not volunteer that information to New South Wales Police when you first spoke to them about Marion's disappearance in June of 2021. Because, because they never... They never ask anything about it, and I, I, I just don't remember. Mr Blum, you knew in June of 2021 that the police wished to question you in relation to your interaction with Marion Barter because she was a missing person. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And if I can return to my earlier question, in those circumstances, why did you not volunteer the information which you have disclosed here to the New South Wales Police? So Rick Bloom changes his story and introduces for the first time that Marion wanted to separate from her family. And he also said that she was a bit of a strange person and she had had enough of her family, he said. Well, he never told the police that. And his answer was conveniently that the police didn't ask him anything about it. I mean, seriously, it's just fanciful. Marion was a missing person. Of course they're going to ask. I wasn't in the room to witness the interview, but this would have been extremely relevant with the New South Wales Police timelining both Marion and him. He didn't say this on the two previous occasions that he was asked about Marion's disappearance. And let's not also forget that he initially told the police that he didn't even know Marion. So I don't believe it's about covering the base of the sexual relationship or any form of relationship because he's done it blatantly across his whole history of being involved with women. I mean, from decade after decade, he's cheated on Diane. We know that. And he's not spared a thought for her or their children together. So with Marion, this is the one that matters. That's what it tells me. This is the one that matters, that he has to be deceptive. Yes, because he's actually been quite open in some ways. I mean, obviously, because there was contemporaneous police reporting, he assent- in my opinion, he essentially follows the line, like whatever's in the police report he will agree to and, and follow along with. But he, it, there's so much just confusing and, in my opinion, outlandish deception around the case of Marion Barter, the pilot coming to collect the motorbike parked in the garage based on a missing person who disappeared at the same time as her. There's just so many 
other options, other men put forward that are in place of him. So why is there that such secrecy and such a different approach in the case of Marion compared to the other women that he's been questioned on on the stand? That is a big question for me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, and that's what the coroner should be weighing up. What's similar and what's different? And the post-defence behaviour and the lies and the deception of and how he lies and what's he trying to cover. These are all very weighty things for the coroner, having watched him and listened to him, that she has to make that determination. But there have been many untruths told And he doesn't tend to fear the consequence of that. But he does on June the 8th and June the 9th. He calls the police back up and he makes a new statement. That tells me this is a significant one. He's bothered enough to call them up and to change his statement. Well, anyone who lies of, I didn't know her to, I know her, or I did know her, but withholding that it was a sexual relationship, and then to say, well, I was never asked, when he knew the significance of it on June the 8th. These are the things that have weight attached to them. Other things are interesting, but this is a very significant part of his behaviour. And one, even though he's in his 80s, he knows fully well what he's doing, in my opinion. In my opinion too. And he may bring in poor me syndrome. And and that for me, again, is cosmetic. It's cosmetic with the walker. I mean, I called it, it would probably be a wheelchair, actually, but it was a walker that he chose with hero written on it. Even that is a message. But trying not to give his evidence, wriggling out of any form of accountability, going in the back door, all these things just talk to me that he's trying to create distance and this cosmetic image of, poor me, I'm just a little old man now. People behave in that way when they've got something to hide, when they're trying to manipulate the system and people. And that's what he's done his whole life. So that is consistent. Also not forgetting that he actually went into aged care respite as well over the time when he was testifying in the last proceeding. We have confirmed that he did return home after that time because he was cited Um, in Ballina at that time, in his home, in his street. Why did he need to go into aged care respite at that time and then the final day have to sit in that aged care respite room with his lawyer rather than fronting up at court like everybody else had to do? So to me, again, yeah, it's poor me syndrome. Certain things that, that I believe were all for cosmetic management. But coming back to court, him having a, a lawyer that is a very good lawyer, that he's clearly, you know, who's paying for that? I don't know. But it's somebody with deep pockets. And where that money comes from, again, it goes back to following the money, um, for me, that will give clearer answers. But his behaviour gives other answers about what's gone on and the behaviour shouldn't be disregarded, in my opinion. It's actually very important, 
particularly his interactions with New South Wales police. And I just hope they don't fall into all the plausible things that he might put up front to deflect and distract and to Darvo, because I think there's a lot of Darvo that goes on with him, and to turn the tables and flip the script, because he's had decades of doing this stuff and really getting pretty good at it. But I just hope the coroner is savvy enough to see through it. Yes, yes. There was actually a really interesting tell within his video recorded interview, and this has been out in the media, so it's certainly something that's public knowledge and I've viewed myself, and that was at the end of the interview when he thought everybody had left the room and he was alone and the video was not rolling. His whole face, in my opinion, changed. He turned to the side and with absolute anger He said an expletive into his shoulder and then turned around and looked back again and then saw the police coming back into the door behind him. And then as they walked around the table to turn the video off, there was a flicker of realisation that that video was still rolling at that time and that video had caught him in that moment. That, for me, was very interesting to see, to see that happening. To see the leakage and the moment where the mask slipped. No more cosmetic image management, because that's really what it is. It's image management and the mask came off. And I would imagine that's the real him. The rest of it is just the the veneer and, and what he puts on to manipulate and get gets what he wants. It's window dressing effectively. But Joni, I have so much more that I do want us to discuss. If we can do one more sweep up of Bloom, unless you tell me you've had enough, you know, and can't take any more, but we can set another time. Does that work for you? Sure. Yeah, that, that would be fine, Laura. Excellent. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Oh, it's been amazing talking to you. You're you're such a font of knowledge, Joni. You really are of just these little moments of the mask slipping or joining up pieces of information that, that's just so important. And I really appreciate and value you giving me your time. So thank you very much. Not a problem. Thank you very much, Laura. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode. More fascinating insights and analysis There's a lot to think about in Marion's case. Also, Joni's recall and attention to detail is amazing. She's really doing a tremendous job. And I know she'll feel somewhat embarrassed as she's very modest, but she's really brilliant, isn't she? There's no substitute for being in court and watching someone like Rick Bloom give evidence for yourself. And this was live streamed, by the way, so you can watch it on YouTube. Sharing the moment that Rick Bloom thinks the cameras are off and him swearing into his shoulder speaks volumes about him. Remember, this was the New South Wales police interview. I want to share with you the full context of this because it's significant in my opinion. Rick Bloom had been questioned for 2 hours and 21 minutes and he remained calm and collected throughout. Then, with the interview over, the last officer in the room reached for the camera as if to turn it off. It was then that Rick Bloom dropped his head and hissed the F-bomb. One single word. One unconscious utterance. Now, as I always say, the context is important too. I wanted to know what was he asked just prior to this. 
Well, just before the female police officer, Detective Senior Constable Sasha Pinazza, left the room, she put to Rick Bloom that he had ripped off a number of women in Australia and overseas before she asked the critical questions. Detective Senior Constable Pinazza said, Mr. Bloom, did you murder Marion Barter? Rick Bloom answered, Are you kidding? Detective Senior Constable Pinazza, No. I'm not kidding, and I expect you to answer my question seriously. Rick Bloom. No. No. Detective Senior Constable Pinazza, did you in any way harm Marion Barter? Rick Bloom. No, I never harm anyone. Wow. So this is really important, and here's my analyses of that exchange. When Rick Bloom was asked about killing Marion, he answered the question with a question, which is an indicator of deception. Next, when asked again, he said, no, no, which is what we call fading facts, another indicator of deception. When asked if he harmed Marion, he doesn't reference Marion specifically. He said, I never harm anyone. His choice of language when being asked the ultimate questions and his behavioural change afterwards are significant to me. When he thought he was alone and he believed the camera in front of him had been turned off, his demeanour totally changed. His eyes blackened and he hissed the F-bomb. That was a glimpse of the real Rick Bloom, in my opinion. It begs the question, why was he so rattled and angry if he has nothing to hide? Why are there markers of deception if he did nothing? Why didn't he just answer the questions straight? Also, why has he changed his story if he has nothing to hide? For me, this treble leakage and the unconscious utterance thereafter, well, that's significant. It reminds me of the jinx when Robert Durst's mic was still hot when he was in the bathroom. For me, these leakage moments are really instructive and they hold a mirror up to the real person. And when things don't go his way, Rick Blum has a nasty side. The Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Well, his mask slipped, and I've seen that with many offenders in court or under pressure, including Peter Tobin, a serial killer in the UK, who when he realised his previous convictions were admissible in a court of law in England and Wales, you see, they weren't in Scotland, where he was previously on trial for Vicky Hamilton's murder, when he heard this, when he was on trial for the murder of Dinah McNichol at Chelmsford Crown Court, he literally lost it. He was no longer the quiet and composed old man in the lilac pastel jumper. He turned into a white fury, raging and thrashing, wiry man who leapt up from his wheelchair and had to be restrained by a number of court staff. The mask slipped, and I saw it in court, and I enjoyed the fact that all the jury had a front row view of the real Peter Tobin. Consequently, it took them just 13 minutes to decide that his poor me syndrome show was just that, a performance, a show, an act. And they saw this vicious and devious killer for who he really was. Yet Peter Tobin could charm the birds from the trees. Well, so could Mr. Rick Blum. Remember, Rick Bloom was a smooth, French-speaking, sophisticated and suave guy who wrote these very charming ads, and he was able to charm all these women. Yet when he was recalled to answer more questions at the coroner's inquest, 
He hobbled back into court, leaning on his wheelie walker on the second occasion and answers one of the first questions, which related to his birth name. And he answered very slowly, stuttering and stammering, and said that he didn't really know the name he was given at birth, but that he went to an orphanage and he said he couldn't really remember what happened 80 years ago. Yet randomly, he would tell the court that he remembered reading in the newspaper that Queensland police thought Marion was in a cult. Just think about that. Truly staggering. That's what he's saying under oath. And we have much more to discuss about Rick Bloom, as well as his wife, Diane's evidence. And for those who didn't catch the announcement on Crime Analyst Socials or The Lady Vanishes, or Sally's Facebook page, a date has now been set for Coroner Teresa O'Sullivan to hand down her findings. February the 29th, 2024. Sally and her family have been waiting a long time for this. And that date can't come soon enough. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.